Welcome to the New America NYC podcast. This event was recorded on March 22nd, 2016, and is titled Democracy Reinvented, Participatory Budgeting and Civic Innovation in America, and features Holly Russen Gilman, a fellow at New America's Open Technology Institute and Political Reform Program and author of Democracy Reinvented, John Paul Farmer, Director of Technology and Civic Innovation at Microsoft NY and former Senior Advisor at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, and Story Bellows, Chief Innovation and Performance Officer at the Brooklyn Public Library. As you know, this is on the record, so I might not say some of the things I was planning on saying. Kidding. No, I'm totally going to say all the things anyway. Uh, and feel free to tweet. So have the conversation on Twitter. Um, there's a hashtag there, Democracy Reinvented. And we would love to be able to uh, expand this conversation outside of the, the walls of this room so people can follow along on Twitter. So we've got some, some awesome folks here uh, who you're going to hear from in a minute. I guess I'll introduce myself a little bit more so you, you know where I'm coming from when I ask these questions and when, when I participate in this conversation as well. So uh, back in 2010, I was working in the private sector and was doing kind of normal private sector things and started thinking about how big an impact I was having. And I thought that what I was doing uh, working in the financial sector was helping some people, but it wasn't helping tons of people and it wasn't really changing the world and it probably wasn't helping the people who needed the help the most. So I happened to be in the right place at the right time and was invited to move to DC to join the Obama administration a few days after the president signed the Affordable Care Act into law, Obamacare. And I started off uh, as the liaison between the private sector and the public sector to make sure they were working together on how to implement this, how to expand healthcare to more and more people around this country. And within a few months, it became really, really clear that data and technology played a, a critical role in the future of healthcare in the country. So I got really involved in that. And uh, as things happen, uh, my one year tenure turned into a four-year tenure because there just kept being more and more interesting things to, things to do. And the thing that kept me there for the last couple of years was when I joined the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy to work with the USCTO, a guy named Todd Park, who's an incredible entrepreneur and, and civil servant. And uh, Todd and I created something called the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program. And it was a pretty simple idea. It was actually four years ago this month that we started this. And there were 10 months left in the president's first term. We didn't know if uh, President Romney would be coming in in January of 2013. <laughs> and, uh, and we had an idea, and we wanted to test it. And the idea was, if we could bring in really incredible, talented people from outside of government, from the 300 plus million that don't work for government already, if we could tap into their skills, their abilities, the way they do things, bring that into the federal government, we thought we could solve problems in a better way by teaming up the outsiders with the insiders so they could collaboratively solve problems and apply things like lean startup and agile and design thinking, things that are kind of common in the startup world in particular. And we, the hypothesis was we think this might work in government, let's test it. So that's what we did with the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program. The president won re-election. Uh, the projects that were worked on were incredibly successful, saving taxpayers 30% of the dollars on the IT spend opening up government data, empowering people with their own health data, things that really changed lives. So we started to grow that program. And then this thing called healthcare.gov happened. You've probably heard about it. And uh, first, all, first of all, 
I did not work on that. Um, <laughs> I, get, I get asked this question quite often. It's on um, the record. <laughs> I did not work on, on that at all. Uh, but the reality is, you know, a lot of people did. And um, a lot of people who were government contractors and others uh, worked really hard. And the funny thing is, they did what they had signed on to do. They were told to do X, they did X. Someone else was told to do Y, they did Y. Someone else Z, they did Z. But it didn't work together. So when they actually tried to turn it on, the thing just didn't work. And there was no way to get through the process of all the steps you needed to do because they hadn't been built uh, in an integrated way. Nobody was ultimately responsible for the user experience. Uh, so we ended up with something that didn't work. And sadly, that, that's something that has happened all too often in government, especially government technology projects. So a team was assembled very quickly to save this. And it included some of these presidential innovation fellows. It included Todd Park. It included some people from outside of government to bring their processes, their approaches in to save healthcare.gov. And the good news, which wasn't as widely reported, is that it did work. So after uh, six, eight, 12 weeks of not working, they were able to fix it. And we ended up having 8 million people sign up in that first open enrollment. That's more than were originally projected when everyone thought the site would work with no problems. Now 20 million people have gotten access to healthcare for the first time through the Affordable Care Act, and it's a, it's a big success. And that moment made it so clear to everyone in the federal government, from the president on down, that we needed to do technology, we needed to do innovation in new and better ways. So uh, the president decided to double down on the approach of the innovation fellows, the approach of the team that saved healthcare.gov, and created 18F, a digital services agency within government, and the US Digital Service to work on high-level presidential priorities, things like healthcare, like visas and immigration, like uh, the background checks for potential gun buyers. So this is happening, and the president just a week and a half ago was in Austin, Texas, at South by Southwest, a 35,000-person tech conference. And in the, 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 for the first time in the 30 years of South by Southwest, the president of the United States was there. And he went there to talk about what can be done better when we tap into all the amazing people, the amazing talent around the country, and we bring them in, we invite them into government to solve problems, because at the end of the day, government is about us. It's our government. We live in a democracy, and it's ultimately up to all of us to contribute to making things better in whatever way we can do that. So that's what I did in my public service, and then I had the opportunity to come to Microsoft. I'm sorry? Yeah, so we're going to do Q&A a little bit later. We're going to do a little conversation up here first. But uh, I certainly hope that we made things better for a whole bunch of Americans, um, for taxpayers, for people who needed social services, for a lot of people. So I came to Microsoft, and I get to work on a lot of the same issues. And it's fantastic that the company had the foresight to decide that it should get engaged in civic issues and civic technology and how we use technology for public good. So that's what I do now. And I actually get to spend a lot of time here at Civic Hall uh, and I see a, a few people here in the room that I see on a regular basis. And for the rest of you, I hope you come back and visit Civic Hall more often because this has become an incredible hub for civic tech activity. And I want to pass along now so you can hear from both Story and Holly about the civic tech work that they're doing. Want me to jump in? Um, thanks, John. Um, so I'm Story Bellows, and four months ago, I moved to Brooklyn um, to join the library world, which is brand new to me. Um, what's not brand new is working in large bureaucracies, kind of being somewhat self-critical of the organizations that we're in and trying to promote new, more innovative, more effective ways of problem solving inside those large organizations. 
Um, before I came to Brooklyn, I was in Philadelphia where I co-founded the Mayor's Office of New Urban Mechanics. Um, and one of the big things that we were really interested in doing was opening up not just the problem solving to different non-traditional partners, but opening up the problem identification as well. Um, we really wanted to make sure that we and the government side you know, didn't, and oftentimes when we were trying to solve problems, we assumed that we had complete understanding of a problem and then we would prescribe a solution to that. And we were wondering why we weren't like appearing more innovative. Um, well, it was because we were telling other people exactly what to do. And so we wanted to figure out how could we engage some of these really smart problem solvers who were, you know, developing apps like Yo, um, which literally allowed people to like text back and forth Yo. And we're like, okay, how can we take these like brilliant minds and start to direct that energy toward like solving real challenges? Um, so we created a program called Fast Forward, um, where we engaged entrepreneurs and startups in problem solving. And what that meant on the government side was really figuring out a new way to mitigate risk, to understand what types of risks we were taking and to create a transparent, um, very clear pathways and structures that allowed for conversations between the startups that we were working with and the leaders trying to solve for us public safety challenges in Philadelphia on a day-to-day -day basis. Turns out like there are all these incredible entrepreneurs from all over the world who wanted to work with a city like Philadelphia but never had a pathway in. Um, they, because the city was typically working with really large companies on those because we didn't want to take risks on early stage startups. Um, like there are all these good reasons for why the city was making the types of decisions that they were making because we were working with taxpayer dollars. So you don't want to just like spread that around. Most startups don't succeed. But we wanted to create pathways where we could enable some of those startups to actually get access to city contracts, but where lots of people could get exposed to the types of challenges that the city was trying to solve on a daily basis. Um, and I had the opportunity to move up here after running that program for a few years. And I'm now trying to apply that same kind of approach to the library. Um, when actually Andrew Roche, who's one of the founders of Civic Hall, um, when he said to me, like, you should look at the Brooklyn Public Library. Like, that's a place that would be great for you to work. I was initially like, libraries? Like, that is not, I do like city stuff. I'm not into the library world. And I realized that was such a huge problem because I'd been addressing so many of these like, really deep challenges that the library is trying to address on a daily basis, yet none of the people from the library had ever been at the table in those civic innovation conversations. Um, and so that's something that I'm really hoping to change. Um, and I think when we talk about participatory budgeting, that's something that we can talk a lot about, the role of the library um, in that in New York City. Um, but we're really trying to make sure that we can use the library and leverage the library as a platform to help solve some of these really intractable urban challenges. And what does it mean to kind of redefine the role of the library in the 21st century so that we do serve the patrons with incredibly, incredibly high needs, but that we also make it a place where a lot of the people here would go as a place of choice as opposed to somewhere where it's um, kind of like the place of, like, of your last... Um, last option for where you're going to go to get help. Um, and I'll leave it there, and we can chat right. more about it later. That's awesome. Well, thank you all so much for being here, and a big thank you to the folks at Civic Hall and to New America NYC. 
you know, these events look very easy to put on, and they're not. So uh, that's a big kudos to them. And a big thank you to John and Story. I mean, these guys are real like, leading innovators, real people who are pioneers in this field. And I am in awe of both of them and deeply respect them. So it's very exciting for me to be here to have a conversation with them. So I'll talk a little bit about uh, participatory budgeting and how we can sort of connect a thread between these things. And we're excited to have you know, a conversation with us and then get your feedback. You know, so you know, jumping off from what John was talking about in terms of harnessing expertise of citizens, that's a big question that I think a lot about, right? How can we tap into the ingenuity and expertise and energy of everyday people to make democracy better? And as Story talked about, this is happening both on the federal level but also on the local level. So we're really seeing cities and local levels as innovation hubs. And so then big questions come into play about the role of community spaces, such as libraries, and how do we reinvent them for 21st century civic life? And then there's the question of if and how precisely we can scale these innovations to the federal level. So that's sort of what I've been thinking about and what I write about in the book. So participatory budgeting, show of hands, who here has heard of it? Wow, sorry. <laughs> means I've been typical room in America. This means I've been talking to you about it, and I'm sorry. <laughs> right, it's definitely not the typical room. But um, you know, basically, it's a process where everyday people are empowered to make decisions on public funds. It started in Puerto Alegre, Brazil in 1989 at the end of a 20-year military dictatorship as a way to renew trust and accountability in governance. And it came to the US with one alderman in 2009 taking a million dollars of his discretionary funds in Chicago and saying, I'm going to turn it back to the people for you guys to decide where to spend this money. And it's very simple in effect, right? So people come out in their communities in really hyper-local areas, and they identify neighborhood priorities. In the United States, it's been restricted to capital funds, so that's brick and mortar. Things like parks and schools and real funding kind of things that you can see with your eyes. And New York City right now is the largest implementer of participatory budgeting. So you have over half of the New York City Council taking a portion of their discretionary funds and putting it back into the hands of the people. And when I had the pleasure to work with John at the Office of Science Technology Policy, one of the things I thought about was, could we scale this process? And what I saw was the Department of Housing is already giving out community development block grants to communities that have a participatory element in them. And so then there's this question of, can we take existing federal dollars and add more of a participatory component to it and really tap into this ingenuity happening on the local level? And the United States has pledged to support participatory budgeting as part of our international commitments under the Open Government Partnership, which is a multi-stakeholder partnership that the United States is a part of with nearly 70 other countries, pledging greater transparency, accountability, and participation. So as you see, these are themes that are happening on the international level. There are themes that are happening on the federal level that John really spearheaded with the Presidential Innovation Fellows, which we're now seeing institutionalized in government, and things that are happening on the local level with the new urban mechanics and other opportunities to think about where are the places where we can meet people where they're at and tap into the knowledge, expertise, creativity, and even kindness that everyday people have in their communities. That's sort of the question that I've been grappling with and what's the opportunity and the role of technology to sort of catalyze, amplify, and support people in these endeavors. Awesome. So with that, let's, let's discuss it. <laughs> awesome, so I've got a few questions. We'll ask a couple of questions here and then we'll open it up uh, to everyone in the room. But to start with, I have my own opinion on this matter. 
but I guess I'm, I just want to ask both of you, do you think this time is different? Do you think there's something special about today, 2016, where there's yeah. actually the potential to get things done in these areas of civic innovation, in including people into how they're governed and the choices that are made that simply didn't exist before? Uh, why or why not? I think there's a new, there are new and more opportunities for engagement in different ways. I think traditionally, if we, people wanted to engage with their community, their government, their school board, it was typically like Tuesday night, we're all like sitting in a room at 7 p.m. Like that doesn't work for everybody. Um, and I think there are certain things where like technology allows people to engage in lots of new ways. And certainly we have a, a, issues of access um, and understanding who has access to participate in these different forums, but understanding that we don't have to have a single approach to how we engage citizens. Like there is one pathway and one way for you to engage and that's it. Um, I think that's an outdated view. And I think that now we can apply some of the like, tools from and lessons from the private sector in terms of market segmentation, that certain people want to engage at 7 p.m. on a Tuesday night, but other people want to do something in a different forum, and that's okay. Um, we don't have to do all things in like all ways for all people. Um, and I think that's kind of a hard pill to swallow in the public sector sometimes, where we're used to everything being uniform across the board. Um, and recognizing that like, we can leverage data to meet people in different ways based on who they are and what their preferences are. And maybe that's something in person. Maybe that's something that's on the phone. Maybe they don't want to participate in their participatory budgeting process. They've elected someone. Yeah. Um, we have a representative democracy. Like That's cool. Um, but I think making sure that people are aware of all of these different ways to engage is something that is new. Yeah, and because so many of these ways are new themselves, it's a challenge. How do you get that and awareness? How fail. do you spread? Yes. Yeah. And yeah. how do you... Like, and, is it, and is it okay if something fails? And this is, again, yeah. something that traditionally has not been um, a strong suit of government, is, right. is accepting failure, being okay mm -hmm. with failure, allowing people to take risks, maybe try some new avenues to allow increased participation, understanding that it's not guaranteed that each right. of those avenues will right. succeed. And I think that's one of the things we're having these sort of innovation centers inside larger bureaucracies is really key, where you have someone who can take on, sort of aggregate the risk associated with trying something new. Um, you know, when we were doing crowdfunding, for example, in Philadelphia, it failed the first time. It was a failure of the mayor's office of new urban mechanics, and guess what? Our mandate from the mayor um, was to try new things. He said, like, verbatim, if you don't fail, you're not trying hard enough. So that for us as new urban mechanics, we learned from that and we tried it again. And guess what? The Office of Parks and Recreation was successful. And so being able to just like the language that you use, who owns success, who owns failure, um, I think is something that's really important in the public sector. I think that's a great point. And I think, you know, the experimentation that you've done in Philly, you know, when it fails in Philly, it may succeed in Rhode Island, like mm -hmm. we see with the civic crowdfunding. So we're in an era where we can share information more cheaply, quicker, in asynchronous ways. So there's an opportunity to really learn from one another. And I think it's a really great question because... You know, when you look at the current political climate, right, there's a feeling that people are deeply disillusioned with the people that they elected to represent them across the spectrum. And there's a feeling that, you know, our politics have become 
stagnant. But yet, when you look at individual people and you look at communities, there's a lot of excitement, there's a lot of optimism, there's a lot of energy. Americans are scrappy, they want to work hard, they want to be part of new economies and new industries, and they see that the world is shifting underneath them. So it's almost like part of the answer to the question is technology is changing the workforce and it's changing the kinds of jobs that are going to be available. And so that's also an opportunity, if we can use it right, to really reimagine what life looks like across these localities. So I think it is a really unique moment where we're seeing a resurgence of local level energy that I hope can be harnessed on, a, on the federal level. I mean, that's what the president was really saying at, at South by Southwest, like, let's get your energy and your enthusiasm and let's put it to public problems. He talked about, you know, how it's easier to order pizza than it is to vote. Like, we need to change that in this country. At the risk of boring everyone by agreeing, um, I also <laughs> think this time is different. I think that technology has, has fundamentally changed society. Power structures are different. Uh, institutions matter less than they used to. They still matter, but they matter less. They face competition from individuals and small groups who are empowered with these new ways to communicate yeah. with things like the cloud and mobile that make it so inexpensive and accessible to try things, to do things. Things that used to require millions of dollars in venture capital funding and a dozen or more engineers can now be done by someone in their free time on the weekend. And that fundamentally changes expectations yeah. that people in society have. So you've got this, this, this changing environment in terms of what people expect from their government, what government can provide through its traditional means, uh, and it's being forced to now compete and to change and to respond. And at the same time, and I don't know how big a, a, the second issue is, but I think it's there, we've had an incredibly successful tech sector over the past decade plus. Um, a lot of people have, have made a lot of money. They've done very well. And a lot of these people now are saying, I don't want to just stay on this treadmill for the next 30 years. I don't have to. I've, I'm set for life. How can I give back? Um, and this might be intersecting, actually, with fundamentally different values of a younger generation yeah. that also seems to want to integrate their values into the work they do every day. So the supply of people who are willing to step into some of these really difficult situations where there might not be uh, the level of enlightenment that your mayor in Philadelphia had, where people might not be as eager to see them try and fail, they're still willing to do that, even though it's a tough environment. So since we all agree that, that this is fundamentally different and it's a really exciting time <laughs> to be in, in uh, uh, civic engagement, civic technology, um, participatory democracy, what are the things that, that excite you the most, Holly? Yeah, it's a, these are great questions. Um, you know, and just one thing on that point, I think it's a great point about the younger generation. And when you look at the data on millennials, right, they want to do good, but they want to problem solve, right? They're much less interested in partisan politics. And I think it's something that we need to take seriously about how can we find solutions to solve problems that move beyond partisanship and the sort of politics as such. So that's just sort of one, one thought. And the things that I'm most excited about, you know, so I was reading some articles about, you know, the future of the economy, and it said that two of the biggest characteristics that are important predictors of success are optimism and empathy. And I, I really thought about that for a while and how, how we can train people to think like that and where technology can do that, where technology has its limitations. And, and so that's sort of what I'm most excited about is maybe we can move to you know, a sort of a 
post, I don't know what the, what the post is yet, but some sort of next phase of thinking about you know, civic engagement or democracy where it's not always just transactional, but it's also about like these core values of like who we are as a society, what we're about. And when you think about you know, empathy and kindness as really core values, maybe that's, that's I think I'm then left optimistic. Absolutely, um, I think that's a wonderful, like, wonderful goal for us as a society to have, to be more empathetic and more optimistic. And I think like, that's one of the things that I see at the library every day and one of the reasons that I'm excited to be there yeah. in a place where we really are like, providing this incredible access to like, independent learning and also like, looking at how do we take that and make that more cohort-based. Right. Um, and what are the programming opportunities that we have to position libraries really at the center of community problem solving? Um, and I look at like what we're doing with participatory budgeting now, and like, I was looking at we have 35 different libraries where there's going to be participatory budgeting this year with 10 different council districts, awesome. seven projects that are library-specific projects. Hmm. And then two of these libraries have organized expos around the participatory budgeting process. Or process. So it's not even just to, to advocate for the projects that benefit the library, but to really leverage the fact that the library has this incredible sort of real estate footprint in 60 different branches all across the borough to start to bring citizens together to figure out how do we, how can we activate each other to solve the challenges that we have in our communities. And that means something different in all the different communities that we have. Um, so Story, how long have you been at the library? Four months. Four months, so a veteran, a veteran of four months. Uh, <laughs> to what extent have the, has the institution um, eagerly accepted and jumped on board with participatory budgeting? And to what extent was it a shift and a change and something that required some champions internally to push through? Um, I think it did require some champions, but I think in the first, in, it's grown every year since it's, um, since it's been in existence. And Councilman Brad Lander, who's one of the real advocates for that in Brooklyn, um, is a great supporter of the library. So it certainly doesn't hurt to have one of our like, most active cheerleaders on council to be one of the most active cheerleaders of participatory budgeting. Um, and so I think that's one of those where it's gotten people on board and it's a program. We tested it and guess what, like lots of people come. So now it's expanding, I mean, 35 of our 60 branches is pretty amazing that there are that many um, libraries where they're hosting um, the voting. And I think it's also really incredible that it's for youth, that like 14 year olds can participate um, in this. And I know that's one of the things that the city of Boston had a really awesome youth-based participatory budgeting program um, that the Mayor's Office of New Urban Mechanics worked on there. Um, and I think that this is a really great way to engage people who don't understand what it is that government actually does on a regular basis, to bring them into the process and to start understanding what are some of the trade-offs that you have to make. That's a great point. You know, I think it's really critical. You know, when people participate in participatory budgeting, right, they get to see how the sausage is made, right, and things cost more than they think and things take longer than they think but they're very happy to be a part of the process. And you know, when you think about what are the trade-offs, right? there's trade-offs for people giving their time, right? everyday people, and there's trade-offs for people in government who have to give a portion of their time. right? Doing participatory budgeting by design means not doing something else. 
And I think people, the momentum is building in a place like New York City because, you know, one of the people who brought it to New York was elected speaker. And people also, as, as elected officials, see their constituents in these new ways. And they really get to interact with their community. You know, but there are trade-offs. And I think as we want the public sector to be more innovative and to do much more with much less, we need to think about how we compensate their time. You know, we need to think about the role of multi-stakeholder actors like Microsoft and other companies that can provide support. And we need to really think about if we're going to be asking all of these things, are we then providing the necessary training for folks inside and out of government? Yeah. So Alec Ross, who was the senior advisor for innovation at the State Department, he's got a quote that's really interesting and has been repeated a bit. And it's uh, essentially, the central divide in the 21st century is not left versus right, but open versus closed. And when we're thinking about uh, participatory democracy, participatory budgeting, it seems really relevant. I'd love to hear your reaction, Holly, to what you think of that quote. Yeah, I think that's a great question and a great quote. And it's another great book that you all should get if you haven't read Industries of the Future. Um, but only after you buy Holly's book. <laughs> Holly's a, first, it's a yes Alex. and. It's a yes and situation. Um, <laughs> Um, you know, I think that's a great point about are we going to be living in open or closed systems? And I think, John, you put it very aptly when you said that because of the way we interact with the social and commercial realms of our life with technology, right, think of the way we all interact, whether it's hailing a cab on Uber, you know, ordering food on an app. Our whole lives have been transformed really in the social and commercial space. Where we've yet to see a killer app, as the president mentioned, is in democracy and in politics, right? We've not yet seen digital tools have this transformative impact in our civic and social lives. And I think people are now getting used to a certain degree of openness, of transparency, of responsiveness. So I think you can't really put the genie back in the bottle. You know, another one of Alex's quotes that I always joke, it says more about me than the quote that I, am, that I think about it, is that the 21st century is a terrible time to be a control freak. And I think that's right for people inside and outside of government. Absolutely, and I feel like so much of the technology that we've used yeah. um, or that we've developed right. in government yeah. is replicating like pretty crappy processes that exist <laughs> in paper. Just putting them online. Um, yes. Here's it's a bad like, process online. Yes, let's um, put it online. And like then we check that box. Um, and I think now we're kind of getting to the point where it's pretty universally accepted that like that's not enough. <laughs> Um, that we right. actually need to reinvent some of the processes and that we are at a place where we can do that. Um, I mean, I think about like 20 years ago when I went to college and it was like you'd, or when you're going to work and you have access to more technology at school in your workplace than you did at home or better technology. Mm. And now that when you work in the public sector has flipped. Right. Um, the technology and the expectations that we have for these social, more commercial transactions um, is so much more efficient. And I think finally people are saying, well, like, why can't we do this in government? Right. Yeah. Um, and it's hard in government. It's really hard to do it. Um, it's exhausting. You're selling it really well. Um, but like, there's, so, there's so much impact um, that we can potentially have. That's the one. You heard that, everyone? Tax junkies. That's what, that's that's what why you uh, should go work in government. That's what you got to look for. But it's also to your point, John, if, you know, if there is an emerging group of people who want to give back, right, and who want to have, you know, whether it's triple bottom line or whatever the framing is, how do we then harness that and create structures 
where these are the folks who also are going to want more responsive institutions. So a few minutes ago, Holly, you said uh, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. And um, I would love to believe that in a lot of ways. But I also, to, to Story's point, think it's really hard work. Definitely. And it, to some extent, it's like pushing the rock up the hill. Yeah. And we're making progress. But if we stop pushing, does the rock slide back down? So I'd actually love to know, uh, as, as the expert on PB, <laughs> what have the experiences been since 2009, where yeah. PB has been, been deployed in the United States? And has, have, have some people, have some uh, cities yeah. tried it and then said, actually, no, this isn't for us. We're going to pull out. We're going to pull back. We're going to reduce it. Well, these are great questions. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, um, it's a very important challenge that we have to think about. You know, once you put a process into place, and as Story talked about, how do you create more of a culture of experimentation, right? It's very easy to talk about lean and agile when you're building something on a computer. It's much harder to talk about it when you're actually putting a process, a public policy into place. And so there have been places like in New York City where there has been enough political momentum where people got elected to the right positions to really expand the process. And it was also part of a series of reforms that were ushered in to sort of show the non-transparent nature of the discretionary funds in New York City. So it sort of got coupled as part of a reform package. And there are people who have been working on this inside of government. And that takes a lot of work, right? And so then I think there's sort of a place for it. There have been communities. There was a community in the south side of Chicago where the University of Chicago is. And you know they tried participatory budgeting and they said this is just too resource intensive. The actual cost of putting the process on takes too much time, too many resources, too much of our staff hours. So we're going to do a PB light where people sort of can give input and there's a little bit of structure, but it's not a full-blown participatory budget process. And you've seen everything in between. You know, I've talked to many dedicated chief innovation, chief technology officers in states, and they say, you know, I really want to do this. I have very little money. We are nearly bankrupt. I cannot justify using taxpayer dollars to run this process. And that's, that's a challenge. And I think, you know, when you think about doing some of these innovations, they take work, right? And they take resources. And it's something you need to think about. One thing we've seen, and this sort of goes to this point about multi-stakeholder actors, there is an opportunity for foundations and other philanthropic endeavors to inject funds into a process to enable greater experimentation on the onset, sort of get some quick wins, and then have public funds go into the process. Because as you've talked about, you, know, you do have to be really thoughtful when you use public dollars. I think that risk capital um, is a yeah. huge issue. Um, in the public sector and figuring out who can jumpstart that and yeah. what sector can help to kick, um, you know, get that in gear and fund those initial pilot projects um, is always a real challenge. Um, but I think it should be dedicated and probably centralized in governments to, to allow those projects to move forward. So the PB process, participatory budgeting process for New York, uh, kicks off at the voting phase, I think it's this Friday, you guys, if York, you should, you so should vote if you can. Go find out if you're, eligible. If, you can, if you're eligible and if you can vote, be a part yeah. of it. Uh, so what we're doing at Microsoft is we're actually uh, donating some devices right. so that people yeah. can have um, a more streamlined way of, of accessing an app that was built by another company um, to allow people to, to get their votes in, make their voice heard. That's a pretty straightforward, simple way for, for the private sector to, to engage. What do you see as the future of 
the various actors in the space, everyone from the civic spaces like libraries yeah. to the private sector companies to the city council people, what are the roles that each can and should be playing going forward? I mean, I would jump in with saying we need to figure out how we do a better job co-creating mm. solutions um, and how we like, set that up from the start to understand that maybe someone is going to financially benefit from this, and that's not a bad thing. Mm. Like, we want to support people who are building sustainable businesses, solving the challenges that we have in our communities. Um, if we can you know, direct philanthropic dollars towards those things where there are not going to be viable business models, then like let's focus all the those you know limited funds in those areas and let's create let's stimulate the creation of new businesses and so I think too often we don't open up the doors um, to conversations around like here's the problem we're trying to solve who's interested and who might have something to offer um, I think all too often in way too many sectors like we can't let it we can't let anybody know that we have this problem. Like, I think we need to be transparent, not just in the solution creation, but in the problem identification. That's a good point. That's great. I have a lot of thoughts. John, do you, do you want to jump in with your thoughts? No, please. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, your thoughts are better than my thoughts. No, that I'm sure is not true. Um, <laughs> equally good thoughts. Everybody gets a trophy. <laughs> That's my kind of library. Uh, um, I think, you know, one of the things that stories pioneered was the fast forward Philly to really like, reduce the barriers to entry for entrepreneurs and other kind of corporate players. So we have to sort of think about from the beginning of procurement and how we streamline these processes to get different kind of dollars into the system to begin with. So that's to the sort of risk capital. But then I think we also have to structure a lot of different kinds of institutions, right? Like academia has a role to play. You know, I, I know someone who's going to a business school and she cannot go unless she does two years of something really interesting in between. Like she gets accepted as an undergrad and then can go as a graduate student. But that's a way to incentivize people to do very interesting work and to leverage all the resources that are at universities and other places. So I think we need to streamline the ability to get all of these different actors into the mix. And I think we have to think about the way we structure things really does matter, right? And whether it's rotations in and out of government, like the Presidential Innovation Fellows, whether it's other kinds of rotations, right, from private sector companies or from foundations, there could be much more fluidity in the system, I think. I'm actually curious, how many people here in the room have worked in more than one sector mm -hmm. of society? It's a great question. Okay, pretty good number. This is, again, not the normal room no, in the United not. States of America. Definitely not. Uh, so it seems like a lot of people here might uh, already understand some of the things that we're, we're talking right, but then about. But how do you create like the structures that enable that, enable right? That. Enable that. Enable more people to, right. to experience that and right. to understand different perspectives. So, so there's one thing I actually want to bring up, just a very particular, yeah. specific thing. Civic crowdfunding. Mm -hmm. So civic crowdfunding, some people are very much for it, some not so much. And I'd like to get the take of both Story and Holly on that. Um, I am pro-civic crowdfunding with a big caveat um, that there are certain types of projects that I think are appropriate for civic mm -hmm. crowdfunding. Um, and I will give the example of like, the wrong type of project, I think, that um, was done in Colorado Springs where they didn't have the funding to keep the streetlights on. And so they were having people you could pay to light your street. And like, guess what? There are really strong ramifications when it comes to crime and public safety and people feeling safe when there's access to, like, to light. Um, and so you have people who can't afford to keep the lights on and they're feeling unsafe. Like this is a major um, sort of social justice issue. 
Um, whereas I think we did some work around like orchard projects in Philadelphia and public space um, projects that we didn't have, that was additive in terms of the things that the city was doing as opposed to replacing funds that the city was using with private dollars. Um, and so it was something that we had a lot of conversations about how um, we developed a policy for that. So we decided it was only going to be for new um, new projects and we weren't, it wasn't going to be some like citywide, whoever can pay for this. Um, it was like typically we were working in areas where there was not a lot of access to um, financial resources, so how could we leverage um, resources from other communities to direct those towards those projects? Yeah. Well, a lot of what I know about crowdfunding is informed by stories, so I'll, I'll use that caveat. Um, I, I'm very interested in it because I think the ability for people to pledge small-scale dollars to fund public projects is a way to connect people in a very visceral way to democracy. And there have been some research that parks are one of the most um, common places for civic crowdfunding, and that makes sense, right? They're capital, they're small, and they're places where people can see their influence. You know, take what happened in uh, Central Falls, Rhode Island. You know, this is a city that went bankrupt, and they brought the community together in a real participatory process and said, we want to do something innovative. We've, we're pledging civic crowdfunding. What should we do? And the community said, the park is the heart and soul of our small community. And people pledged their dollars, and they worked with a local arts cooperative to actually design the garbage cans to go in the park. And then people came out one day and built them. Right? So that's an amazing way to bring a community together and show that you know, government services can work for the people, by the people. But you know, that being said, this question of equity is essential. And I think it brings up a larger question of things like civic crowdfunding or participatory democracy or any slew of other civic innovations that I talk about. You know, are they meant to really replace representative democracy? You know, I, I don't think they are, but there might be people who disagree, right? I think they can strengthen our institutions and strengthen us, right? Strengthen the ability of us to sort of flex our civic muscle, which I would argue is very weak right now in this country. And that's sort of where they can be efficacious. So I feel like I succeeded. I feel like yeah, I, I succeeded because I found something where I disagree. Yay! Um, Discourse. Uh, so, <laughs> so it's probably that on a scale of one to five, you're both like around a four, right? You're in favor, but with some some concerns. Yeah. I like that. I'm I like concerned that. with some a little bit of optimism like about two? around the edges. I'm like a two, okay. yeah, uh, because I'm very worried about about the equity issues. Yeah. I'm very worried about, especially in a, in a day and age where many communities don't have the funds available to provide services like keeping the lights on, and yeah. uh, have in many cases been unwilling to make some hard choices about how to get back to doing the fundamental business of government. I'm worried that that you could end up with certain communities having access to what should be basic services and others not. And um, I, I do believe that the potential for including people in how problems get solved is really interesting. So it, if civic crowdfunding, some manner of it, could be a way to get people to understand better how things get done, I think that's really interesting. I'm just, I haven't yet been, um, uh, my, my fears have not been assuaged. I'm still a bit worried about how it would actually play out. So I say that as someone who's actually very interested in crowdfunding in general. Yeah. I just feel like um, when cities are abdicating their responsibilities and saying, well, you take care of it, some people can't take care of it. And that's kind of one of the reasons we have government. So with that, since I finally succeeded in finding a point in which there's some disagreement, I want to open it up to folks in the room. So please, uh, there's a microphone that will come around. 
just to reiterate, you will be recorded. Up in the front, we've got a question. And um, please, uh, you, may be, you may be tweeted about as well. Uh, I'm Bill Armbruster. I'm a retired journalist. My question for you, Holly, is this. Have any Republican governors, mayors, senators, congressmen, uh, state legislators expressed interest in uh, participatory, participatory budgeting? And uh, what success, if any, has there been so far? That's a great question. So in New York City, the process began in a bipartisan coalition including a Republican city council member, Eric Ulrich. We've seen it primarily on the local level in the U.S., so a lot of the levels of governance that you talked about have not yet participated. But in New York City, we've seen bipartisan support for the process. And I just want to point out that Bill, as he mentioned, uh, is a journalist, and he, he knew to say, state his name and affiliation, very professional, <laughs> retired. <laughs> Um, still, still, you you did what I didn't tell. You set the example that I should really have. Really uh, We've got a question right back here in the middle. Yes. Hello, I'm Maria Valander. I'm in programs and communications at the social impact firm Reboot, and I had a question um, in relation to that. Holly mentioned that uh, participatory budgeting started in Brazil, and I know that it has been adapted to a number of different um, country. Contacts. And so I was interested in how the participatory budgeting model might have needed to shift or adapt to the U.S. context, and if so, how? That's a great question. Um, and, you know, it really does take on a different flavor in every place that it's implemented and every way that it's executed. And that has to do with both the institutional structure and where it is deployed, as well as what kind of dollars are at stake, right, the amount of dollars, the restrictions on those dollars. You know, one, there's a few noticeable differences just when you look at, you know, the Brazilian cases to the United States. And there, it's much more uh, participatory and deliberative here in the U.S., much more about face-to-face -face dialogue and small group deliberation. And the Brazilian process, you actually elect representatives who are delegates who vote on your behalf. And the way the process in the United States writ large has been structured is that it works with, within the existing budget system, right? So there's a set of money that is at discretion of some elected official. You open up the participatory budget process, and then that set of dollars are then allocated through a vote. In other places, participatory budgeting has been, become a parallel structure. So it's sort of propped up in an independent way from the core government structure. And you, know, you see everything in between. The city of Paris has almost a half a billion dollars they're doing a PB on over six years. That's a process with its, with its own rules and norms. So it really is, when we say participatory budgeting, it's confusing because we don't mean just one thing. I'm actually curious. So are any private sector or nonprofit organizations adopting PB independent of, of government participatory budgeting, which is what we typically think of? That's a great question. I think when I think about the definition of participatory budgeting, I'm really restricted to public funds. Mm -hmm. I think you are seeing a lot more participatory and experimental board allocations of funds and of voting and of delegates. So I think it's always sort of a definition game. Like, yeah. would those then count? Perhaps they would. Many of them have the same core values. And so we have a, an incubator project at the Brooklyn Public Library. And 
we did have a social media campaign around that where we allowed members of the public to vote, which contributed, I think we had that as like 10% um, in terms of the overall scoring of how much impact that had. Right. Um, but I think as we go forward, I would be interested in opening up um, some of that process and the dollars that we have allocated for these, again, like higher risk type projects yeah. to other other individuals, other organizations, and ultimately to open up the, you know, proposals to other organizations that it doesn't just need to be library staff saying, here's my idea for what the library could or should be doing, but that someone in another organization might have something that's much more interesting and innovative that we could work on. And we're seeing, you know, discussions of participatory budgeting in public housing dollars, in school dollars, in student government dollars, right? So it really can run the gamut. Yeah. Well, on that note, thank you, Story Bellows. Thank you, Harris Gilman. Thank you all for being here. Uh, we will be mingling and about. Please come up here for more questions. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.